Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and welcome to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Sid Malia, an actor and mental health advocate who created the web series and soon-to-be book, Consider This, and Prashant Latwala, a South Asian who's found a career in conservation and law enforcement with the National Park Service. Stay tuned. It's not often that we acknowledge and unmask our mental vulnerabilities and anxieties. In fact, I would figure that many South Asians struggle with this concept. Yet in our connected world of 2020 and beyond, Sid Malia is advocating for us to do more of this by sharing his own personal story of both mental health challenges and well-being. As an Indian born in the US and raised in the UK, Sid's journey has brought him through being the son of a very wealthy businessman in the alcohol industry, to coping at a young age with his parents' divorce, to helping run a franchise IPL cricket team, to a career in acting and producing. Soon to be made into a book, his popular web series titled Consider This shares some of Sid's own personal experiences in an effort to educate and promote awareness around mental health. We caught up recently and started to talk about the nature of going through the COVID experience alone and together. Have you found that going through this with others has brought you a little comfort in that? Meaning that, you know, we're all going through this together. We're all kind of in the same boat and we're trying to struggle with this ambiguity, this uncertainty, but at least we're doing it together. It's not like, you know, we don't have the comfort of each other. Have you, have you found surprises in that where you're reaching out and, and finding new ways to sort of develop relationships in, in this new environment? I, yes and no. I think I live on my own. So for me, this period I've actually gone through physically on my own. It's me and my dog. So from that point of view, it's actually been okay. Like I haven't, I haven't really... I know a lot of people have sort of had their support systems and this and that for me because I'm used to living on my own anyway. Yeah. I'm not the most socially active person in the world. So things didn't really change that much for me in terms of lockdown. Yeah. In terms of what I would have been doing. Um, But I think, yes, just being able to talk to people and help others going through things has definitely helped me. Yeah. But I think it also, you know, if I'm going to be honest with you, hearing others crib and whine about how bad it is and how the government doesn't know what they're doing. I'm talking about in every country, not just the US or whatever. The government doesn't know this. The government doesn't know that. They're this, they're that. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. And that it's kind of like, you know what? I'd rather go through this alone if this is what I have to listen to every day from you. Like, you know what? It is what it is. You're not the government. So keep quiet and just, I might not agree with what people are doing either. I might not agree with policies either, but accept it. You cannot change it. You know, because you've had that comfort of being on your own, um, do you find that in that way, this, because it hasn't necessarily been a physical change for you, 
um, psychologically or mentally, or even from a coping mechanism, has that just made it so that for you, it's, it's a little bit easier in, in that way, just because, hey, this is kind of the way I, I had been behaving before? You know what, I think so. It, it, it's funny because growing up, my biggest fear was fear of loneliness. Yeah. And I think that stems from coming from divorced parents, being an only child, going to boarding school when I was 10. So from the age of 10, I was in a school where I was constantly surrounded by people. And my whole thing in life was I constantly liked to have people around me. Yeah. And this kind of changed probably when I became, I'd say 30, so three years ago. Yeah. And suddenly I started really like appreciating solitude and appreciating my own time and appreciating being with myself. Um, one of the things I speak about in my Consider This series is that if you can get comfortable with yourself, you realize that you are actually never alone because yeah. you have you with you, right? Yeah. And I think having come from that mindset in the last few years definitely helped me deal with COVID better because I was like, well, I, I actually have everyone I need right now to deal with this. And yeah. that's me. Like, there's not been one part of me that's been like, oh, I wish I was with my parents in the UK. I wish I had this. I wish that. I'm like, you know what? I'm really, hate to say it, happy that I'm going through this yeah. on my own right now. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I wonder for those who haven't yet come to that realization or they're still in that journey, for you reflecting back on the, the sentiment you just mentioned when you were younger, do you think that that, you know, reflection um, speaks to perhaps uh, even a sense of resiliency and the ability to cope even when you were younger? It's just that you didn't have the realization that it was there? Yes, I think, I think a lot of things have happened in life that have just, you know, put me in a situation. And again, I'll tell you this, is that I feel fortunate that I've, I've gone through a lot and I've experienced a lot in 33 years. Um, yeah. a, a lot, good, bad, up, down, whatever. And I think that in itself has developed a sense of resilience in me. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that, you know, I guess it's something that and until you mentioned it right now, it's probably not something I even thought about, right? You just take yeah. things for granted when they're there. But then it's probably only at times like this during COVID where I'm like, oh, I am very well equipped to deal with this yeah. because yeah. I've lived on my own. I've done things on my own. Um, and, you know, I don't, I got to a place in my life where I guess my identity and, and mental happiness isn't reliant on social engagement. Yeah. Which is a big, big realization, because if this had happened, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been right. a very different story, right? No. And, and I wonder if, like, just the maturity or the process of going through that, um, you know, depth of aging, for that matter, is it, that's part of it, right? We, we become more uh, aware and cognizant of our experiences as we grow older. And kind of in that same light, you know, along with the COVID experience, there's been a lot of awareness around things like representation and social justice and the kind of polarization that, that it offers, you know, to society. So for you, having had um, this kind of experience and all the life experiences that, that you bring, um, how have you been, how's that um, awareness now affected or even, um, you know, changed your, your mindset in thinking about that other backdrop of all the socially responsible causes that are out there and, and all the movements um, that are really coming to light, especially during this time right now? 
you know, I, I think that if we're talking about the social justice stuff and all the stuff that's gone on with all the movements and everything in the last, you know, let's say this year, really, yeah. right, with everything that's happened from George Floyd and all of this stuff. Sure. I mean, really, you're, you're a South Asian. I'm a South Asian. You grew up in the U.S. I grew up in the U.K. Um, as Americanized as you are and as British as I am, we're still two brown people living in a predominantly white country. And I think what people don't perhaps understand or what at least they're, this is, this is quite a long answer this, but I'm trying to say it in the way is no. that what I think people are realizing that racism can exist in a number of different ways, not just going up to someone and calling them something straight to their face, Sure, right? Yeah. It exists in so many different ways and in so many different levels. Most of it that people aren't even aware of it, right? They yeah. aren't even aware of it. And um, I think what's nice about what I've seen with these, all the movements that have happened this year is that people are actually willing to re-examine themselves and actually... Feel, I feel like they're willing to learn mm -hmm. and to see things. You know, there's a fascinating book uh, called Blink by Malcolm yes. Gladwell. Yeah. Right? Which um, you must be aware of. Great and, he, and he talks about it. And he, right. And he, and he talks, and this, this thing was written however many years ago, right? Yeah. And he talks about it there. And he uses an example of a white male walking into a car showroom as opposed to a black female walking into the same car showroom. Sure. And without the salesman even realizing it, his whole demeanor mentally changes when he sees the woman and automatically says, let me show her the cheaper cars. Yeah. Now, if you ask that salesman, are you racist? Are you sexist? He's going to say no. Right. Because he's not actually aware of what's going on in his mind. So I think what this has done this year is bring these little sort of prejudices that are there lodged in people's minds to the front of their consciousness. And it's actually getting people to sort of look at this more and be like, Oh, hang on. Yeah. I might be a, I might not be a racist in the traditional sense of the term, but I definitely have biases based on the color of someone's skin that I wasn't even aware I had. I'm uh, here today with my guest, Sid Malia. And after a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about some of his work with consider this so stay tuned ruckus avenue radio welcome back to our conversation with sid malia as we pick up talking about his web series consider this and sharing more about his own mental health a couple of years ago give you a bit of background i stopped drinking uh, yeah. in august of 2018 and um you know for those of your listeners who don't know me, my actual background or family background is with, with big alcohol producers in India. Yeah. So I stopped and on the one year anniversary of it, which would have been August last year, 2019, I put up, it was a simple Instagram like story saying, Hey guys, it's like one year since I stopped drinking. Yeah. And I explained why I said, look, it wasn't that I was a big drinker wasn't an alcoholic or anything, but whenever I did drink, whether it was, two drinks or 20 drinks, I'd get morbid anxiety the next morning. So I decided to quit. Yeah. And I was just flooded with messages, mostly from young Indians who followed me. And they were like, this is amazing. We feel the same way. We've never heard someone say this. 
And if you, who comes from a family that produces alcohol, can give it up, then there's no reason why we can't. Yeah. And it was really off that I was like, you know what? My majority of my audience is in India. Yeah. These sorts of issues are not widely talked about. I mean, if we think there's a stigma around mental health in the West, I mean, in India, it's non-existent, yeah. right? Right. And I was like, I've been through a lot. Things that people might not necessarily think that someone like me, and let me preface that, when I say someone like me, people seem to have an assumption that if you come from some sort of wealth or anything like that, then, well, your life's fine and you yeah. can't feel and you don't suffer mentally like anyone else. So I was like, if I can talk about the things that I've gone through, maybe it'll inspire others. Yeah. And also help others. I'll be like, look, this is what I went through. This is what I did to deal with it. If it helps you, cool. If it doesn't, then that's also fine. But yeah. the main thing was to show people that no matter who you are, what background you're from, everyone is susceptible to suffer from mental health issues. And that's where the series was born from. And, um, you know, in each one, as you've seen, I talk about something separate that I've gone through. And so, some of them are not necessarily things that people might associate with mental health. Sure. I think a lot of the time when you say mental health to people, you know, you say, what's the first thing that comes to mind? They'll say depression and anxiety. And, yeah. You know, as you know, as much as that is a part of it, it's not all of it. Yeah. So talking about other things like OCD and, you know, being lonely and stuff like that, I, I wanted to kind of shine a light to show people that you could suffer in a number of different ways. And was that sort of openness and honesty, you think, the kind of vehicle to allow for there to be more trust in those who are listening and, and feel like they have a little bit more of a sense of connection with you? Absolutely. I think... Um, you know, I, I think with, with anything, it's about trust, right? And I think that if you're, if you're especially doing something like this, the only way to connect to people is to put the guard down. And yeah, you can't ask someone to be vulnerable if you're not going to be vulnerable yourself. Right, right. right. So, you know, you, you, you kind of want to... I think it's, I think it's, it's fun because I've, I've looked at this from acting. I mean, you, know, you look at doctors yeah. yourself, and you look at what makes a great doctor is not his level of medicine, but it's the bedside manner and how they're going to make you feel, right? Sure. If, you know, no matter how sick someone is, a doctor has the ability to make you feel like, do not worry, this is all going to be fine, right? right? right. And, and I think that's kind of similar when it's doing videos like this, is just to make people feel like I'm on your level. I'm, I'm not preaching to you. Yeah. I am you. I am you who has gone through this and, hey, we're in this together. Don't right. worry about it. Well, and was that difficult? Was there a process to be able to say, hey, listen, yes, in order for me to do this, I'm going to have to take that hurdle of making myself vulnerable and putting myself out there and being honest. Um, was, was that a struggle to, to have to do Surprisingly that? Surprisingly, not. Not at all. It was something that actually came very very easily to me, which, you know, again, as I said, if I'd done these 10 years ago, it would have been very different. But I think as yeah. you grow up, without even realizing it, you just sort of put the, put the boundaries down and the guard goes down. And, you know, what happened is after the, after the first one, um, I got people, you know, who was loving it, right? Loving the that I was so open and honest. But then again, you got people writing back being like, 
who are you to have these problems? Like, like almost angry. Like it must be a you, you must be a fake. Who are you to preach to us? And then that's right. my point: is I'm not preaching. This is this is all honest. If you yeah. don't believe it, then there's nothing I can do about it. Like yeah. I'm trying to be as open about this. I'm telling you that I was depressed. I was on antidepressants. I suffered yeah. from OCD. I told you that I got arrested when I was drinking. Like, how right. much more do you want me to prove to you that this is not scripted? Yeah, and yet you know the ability to satisfy. Um, you know, all that are out there is, is a tough one, right? I mean, I think you even have a particular episode where you're talking about, you know, what, uh, what to make of opinions of those <laughs> that are out there, right? And, and it's so, um, it's almost impossible to, to satisfy opinions, but it all depends on what you make of them and, and, and how they affect you in that way and who you prioritize, as you mentioned, to say, who am I going to actually like listen to and trust? Yeah, and I think that's the important thing. I think that, you know, we do tend as humans to take, try to take everything that someone says. Well, someone said it, it must be true. Right. And then you have to actually think about it. And you're like, well, you know, let's think of the entire backstory, why they've come to the conclusion that they've come. You don't know why that person said that. Yeah. It might have been through the lens that they're viewing it through. And, and, and you know, I mean, as <laughs> you go to the doctor, the people go to the doctors and take second opinions. And that's from some of the most trained people on the planet. Yeah. So if you're yeah. going to take a second opinion from a doctor, then why would I give a, attention to someone who's not even a specialist in what they're talking about in the first place? Well, and I wonder if because of the platform, right? I mean, opinions have become democratized, right? Everybody's got an opinion and everyone has a suddenly a platform to be able to share that. Is that the, is that sometimes the risk of, you know, when you are making yourself open to the, the public in that way, um, you know, via the internet, because you, you're actually having this barrage of any, everyone's got an opinion now and, and they want to share it with you. I think, I think that that's, so that's, I think one of it is, as you, yes, so that's a sign of the times we live in. I know we're going to be honest about it. Social media is like giving a machine gun to a monkey. Like yeah. it, 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 it's, it's, it, you cannot stop people. And I think what it's done is given people a voice in a good way, yeah, but also in a bad way because people, people, you know, they call them those keyboard warriors can sit yeah. at home and say things yeah. without any consequence. Now, they wouldn't walk up to you in the street and say that. They'd probably get hit. But now they can sit at home and write whatever they want from the comfort of their dark basement and no one, you know, there's no consequences. Yeah. So I think, I think though, but I'm all for opinions. When it's something that's constructive, that can allow conversation and debate. Yeah. And I think this isn't something just on social media. I think this is to do with politics and everything like that, everything. right? Yep. I think it's to do with everything. Have an opinion, but be willing to listen to the other side and willing to listen to someone who has a differing opinion and have a debate about it and allow yourself to be open to changing your opinion and to learn new things. I think so much of this has happened through this election as well. Like, I'll be honest, yeah. is that, you know, you, you, you have friends who so one way or the other no 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 it's our way our way and i'm like what makes you any better than the people that you're bashing if yeah. you're not willing to listen i'm not saying you have to agree with anyone yeah take in the information and then make a judgment yourself you're free to do that it's a free country you know thinking of balancing opinions and and trying to straddle 
you know, people you care about, you love, your friends who have different opinions with you, being able to straddle the sort of idea of addiction is um, a tough one as well, right? Because on the one hand, you have the platform of sharing your experience and how you've made your way through that and become sober and, you know, now expressing how you've been able to deal with that. And on the other hand, um, have you found it also equally challenging to say every time that that expression happens, I, I actually am reminded of the pain uh, of that addiction. Is there any sensibility to that? Meaning, have you had to really sort of grapple with that kind of balance as well? So I will say when it comes to alcohol, and I, I should mention this, that I wasn't an addict. Yeah. So I wasn't an alcoholic or anything like that. Um, for me, it was, you know, I could go months without it. I wouldn't drink frequently. It's not like, you know, I drink. When I did drink, it would be excessive, right? It was like binge drinking. Sure. So it wasn't an addiction like that. Um, for me, it was more, I guess, a choice of realizing that, well, why am I getting such bad anxiety? Surely I need to figure some other stuff out before I kind of introduce this back in. Sure. But I, 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 I do see from my point of view that when you have people like being like, what are you talking about? You're talking rubbish or whatever. What hurts is that, when you're being so open and vulnerable and so honest, how can people still say such things that they do? And that actually gets you to look more like a, you know, you know, like I, I tell you, actually, for people who do go through addiction, mm. actually drug addicts, alcoholics, whatever it might be, people who have been addicts yeah. and who have decided to quit, they better have a strong support network around them. And when I say strong support network, I mean people who actually encourage them and are proud of them like this, mm -hmm. because, you know, I wasn't an addict and it hurts if I'm getting someone saying, oh, there was nothing wrong with you. I mean, imagine someone who's actually been an, a proper addict who's gone through the process of cleaning themselves out, sure. who's gone through the hard work of stopping the addiction. And then you have a family member or a friend or someone like that, basically just demeaning it. Yeah. It can knock you sideways. And I imagine that the same lack of support feels the same way for any kind of um, mental illness, whether that's depression, anxiety, OCD. If you don't have the support around you, um, it certainly makes the road to um, tackling or battling it um, that much harder. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a good support network is, is necessary. Um, I, I think, I mean, we were talking about this just before we started the, yeah. started the interview was support doesn't mean you need to go out of your way and actually do anything. Sometimes the best support you can do is just keep your mouth shut yeah. and say, you know, what, I'm here for you yeah. if you need me. Right. I think too many people get caught up in the idea that, okay, to support you, I have to give you advice, but oh my gosh, I'm not a mental health professional. So what advice could I give you? I don't want to say it. No, you don't have to say anything. Just keep quiet. Like that's literally sometimes the best thing people can do. Is that something that we um, probably should take advantage of more that like, you know, if there's a, if there's a take home message from some of your work and some of the consider this episodes of just building that awareness and being that sort of support network for someone who might be in need and being there to listen, being there to not necessarily act, but being there to actually be a shoulder. Be a shoulder and also be willing to learn. I think that's the other thing. I think, I think we know how there's a stigma around mental health. Um, fortunately, kids at much younger ages are being taught about this stuff in school. Um, 
and as a pediatrician yourself, I'd love to get your views on this as well, because I think, I mean, honestly, I've been doing all, since I've been doing all of this work, now all the math and the geography and the history that I was taught in school actually <laughs> seems worthless. Honestly, yeah. I wish yeah. I was being taught this sort of stuff instead at yeah. a much younger age. And I think it could have helped tremendously. But the problem is, sorry, it's just to say is that I know that because there's still a lack of understanding around mental health, if you're someone that perhaps doesn't know much about it and someone comes to you with, you know, whatever they might be going through, don't let those preconceived notions jump up in your head of what you think it is. No, actually be willing to listen to the person and let them explain to you what they're experiencing and be willing to learn as well. No, you're absolutely right. And, and as a, I'll put my pediatrician hat on for a second, you know, the, the whole concept that we know um, about adverse childhood experiences and what that kind of trauma, and there's many different versions of that, abandonment, physical trauma, emotional trauma, um, they all lead to actually physical neuro, neurobiologic changes that can set someone up for, for future um, you know, health issues, and um, both in the physical side and in the mental health side. Um, and, and so there's a huge new, I think, body of work that's coming about. And to your point of, you know, should kids and teens and families be not only just learning about this, but talking about it and um, sharing their experiences? hopefully far, far more of it can actually come about than what happens right now, not just globally, but I mean, um, you know, at the, at the community level. So um, that really happened with a lot of conversation and, and family and neighborly and school uh, support. So there's a lot of work to be done. I think that it's also like, you know, I mean, I think there's so much work, but like cause my parents got divorced when I was very young, when I was six. Yeah. And I'm an only child, which meant my mom had a child and had gone through a divorce before her 40th birthday. Yeah. That's not old by any stretch of the imagination. And we've talked about this. What happened? The divorce happened. We moved into our own house together. Look, financially, I'm going to say we were comfortable. Everything was fine. No issues sure. like that. But it was literally the blind leading the blind. She didn't know what to do. Yeah. She wasn't prepared for this. She didn't get married with the expectation that she was going to get divorced. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. And looking back on it, we've both spoken about this, that how much we could have both benefited from professional help to guide us through this. The problem lies with, the, and this is another thing you were talking about, psychological issue for kids. I was speaking to my therapist. She's like PTSD, which people mm -hmm. usually just associate with soldiers in war. A child of divorce can suffer from PTSD, which can last with them for a lifetime. And I think yeah. because divorce, quote unquote, is so common yeah. today, people say, oh, it's just a, you know, people don't give it the attention it deserves. And so much of the psychological damage that can come from it is just swept under the rug. You know, people are like, oh, well, one in three people get divorced. And I'm like, that statistic doesn't change or make anything any better. So yeah. what, what, like, what does that solve? Yeah. And it, it's amazing because I think that um, for the most part, a lot of what you're mentioning, the experience that you had as a child who went through this yourself with your, your parents, your mom, um, I think being having a, a, an avenue to actually share that and talk about it, it just speaks to this um, huge, huge need for people to access mental health professionals and seek out people to talk to counseling, therapy, uh, any of that is so underutilized and we need more of it. Um, 
we, we have a few minutes left, but I, I just wanted to ask you this. I mean, given all the things that you've experienced um, this year and this, the content that you're putting out that I think is allowing people to have these conversations and really share a little bit about yourself and for them to actually share a little bit about themselves or reflect on themselves, what's coming up for you now? What, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to, um, to sharing or, or to working on um, for the next year? Well, I think, I mean, definitely seeing how successful Consider This is, it, that, that this just has to be the start, yeah. right? And, it, it, you know, I would be doing a disservice now to people, honestly, if I didn't continue this in some way or form. Um, I'm doing a book, a Consider This book, which is basically talking, I mean, it's very similar to the series, but I'll go a lot more in depth about certain things, sure. include certain exercises, you know, from acting class and from other walks of life that, you know, have helped me and the idea is just to keep trying to shine a light on this i think i think that it's like with any any issue right you just need to get a conversation going you just need to get enough people talking about it and willing to learn about it yeah and that for me is the big thing um you know whatever it is with film that i do whether it's acting or production i always try and have an element in it that can help educate people in some way shape or form and um that's what I just want to keep doing, especially around mental health and especially back in the back from where we're from, because, yeah. you know, you talk, you know, India is still a country. It's a very young country. Mm -hmm. uh, very. I think we want 70 percent of the countries under the age of 30. Yeah. Um, there's a great opportunity to start engaging with and educating people around mental health. But there's just not the resources currently to do it in India. So it's about doing whatever we can, whether it's doing radio shows like this, whether it's doing two-minute YouTube or Instagram videos, whatever right. it is, whatever we can do to just keep shining a light on it and to, if you like, normalize it and show people that it's okay to feel, then that's just what, that's the plan moving forwards. That's right. Sid, it's been... That's so terrific to talk to you. We're really grateful that you've been able to share this with us. And I hope you continue to share it with uh, those um, online and certainly in book version soon. Um, hopefully you'll come back and join us again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. I really love finding kernels of representation in not-so-obvious places. In the U.S., the national parks are a treasure that's enjoyed by millions, and I'm certainly one of them. Granted, they're my own experiences, but I have yet to come across any South Asians working and engaging in this area. That's, of course, till I met Prashant Latwala. Born in Mumbai, Prashant was raised in and has deep roots in Newark, New Jersey, and has developed a career in conservation and law enforcement as part of the National Park Service. He's been stationed throughout the country at places like Yosemite, Lake Mead, at the Washington headquarters, Gulf Islands, and now currently as the chief ranger for the Rangers Activity Division at the Natchez Trace Parkway. He lives with his wife and two teenage kids in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I was grateful to get some time with him to talk about his career journey and passion for what he does. I was born in Mumbai, India, or Bombay, and I came here when I, when I, was, when I turned five. My, my parents migrated here. 
um, and we, we went to New Jersey where we settled. Uh, we moved around a couple of places in Jersey, but finally really settled in Newark, New Jersey, where um, that's you know where I grew up. I went to elementary school there. Went to a magnet uh, charter school in, in, in downtown Newark where I was catching the, the public transportation every day, you know, down to down to down, down to downtown um, Newark, New Jersey. While I was in in high school, you know, me being Indian and and I went to predominantly uh, African American school. It was probably the best um, experience I've ever had uh, in terms of growing up. Uh, Newark is is where my where my love is still to this day, even though I don't love um, I don't live there. You know, we we've had our share crimes. And and I was and I was a victim of of, of some of those crimes that occurred, um, including um, including getting robbed at gunpoint twice, um, my junior my junior year my my senior year, and, and and it really got me upset. It really it really got me to a point where I was like, you know, I, I got to do something about this. Um, and so the concept of law enforcement started hitting my my um, my thinking, uh, but I was still young, naive, um, didn't know what I wanted. Um, and so I got introduced to a, a great program called the Student Conservation Association. Um, they came to our school, did a presentation, and I was the first one to sign up. Um, once I signed up and I graduated high school, I conducted five internships with them every summer while I went to, to uh, Montclair State University in Upper Montclair, New Jersey. Um, and each summer led me to a different area of the country um, where I finally left New Jersey. I didn't, I didn't think there was anything beyond Jersey. Is there ever anything beyond Jersey? Or? <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, my, I remember my, my, my memory where the first uh, intern I did was they, they bought me a, a bus ticket. And I got on a Greyhound bus in, in Newark. And, and I ended up in Bend, Oregon. Wow. Um, the the, the but, literal mirror opposite of the country, right? Completely. Completely. And my supervisor picked me up and, and, and she took me up into the United States Forest Service where they had a cabin for me to stay for the summer. Um, and the following week, she's like, okay, get ready. We're going to go for, we're going to train for a week. And my training consisted of backpacking um, in the Deschutes National Forest uh, in Three Sisters Wilderness for a week and where she taught me how to backpack, how to cook out there. Um, and my goals or my job was two things, kick horse crap off the trail. That's right. And, and break up illegal fire rings. There you go. Yeah, and I, and I was going to mention, you know, prior to that experience, had you and, and growing up in, in Newark and, you know, your family settling in New Jersey, did you grow up with any of these exposures before that point? None whatsoever. Uh, you know, my parents coming here, coming here, you know, all they'd concentrate on was, 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 was making money, was to the lights on. Um, you know, we lived in, in, in uh, Ivy Hill apartments, which consisted of, you know, about nine high rises, 14 floors. Um, and, and, and so that's what they did. They just worked, 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 worked. And so I ne we never got a chance to, to go out and do these type of activities. In the spirit of, you know, signing up for this conservation opportunity and not necessarily having a whole lot of that exposure, how did your family uh, react to that when you said, hey, I'm going to be taking a, a bus out to Oregon uh, for the summer? It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was difficult. Um, you know, obviously my parents growing up in, in, in India, they, you know, they had, they had their, their values and their desires for me. But me growing up here, my values and desires were molded by folks that surrounded me in, in, in elementary school and high school, uh, which was 
which was to play sports, uh, which I did in high school. And it was a big fight with my parents, me just playing baseball. When it, when it finally came down to me leaving the house, um, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pleasant. It was, you know, it wasn't a blessing. I had to go, I had to just go do it. For you, um, reflecting back, it may have been a tougher road for your family, your parents, but, you know, for you, um, as you reflect back, um, you know, maybe this was a, a leap of faith that you had to take, but even growing up, did you have some interest or even any cultivated sort of motivation to say, hey, boy, at some point, I can't wait to just get out there and, and really sort of explore or, or take that kind of, you know, leap? Was that something that was emerging or was it something that sort of came as a surprise? No, it, it, it was it, it was a, a surprise, um, you know, and, and, and that surprise came from me living in Newark, New Jersey, living in those high rises and saying to myself, this is not what I want to do. Um, and so I was trying to find avenues to 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 set myself up to success um, once I graduated high school. Uh, but even when I went to college, I mean, you know, there was no money to pay for me. Um, so I had to get a scholarship, I had to get some loans, and I actually worked off five years of my um, school years uh, at the Hilton. So I would work at the Hilton during the school year as a, as a, as a room service server, and in the summer I would quit and do one of these internships. And I did that for five years, um, and, and, and the only reason I had to work at the Hilton was to pay for each semester, um, because there was, no, there was no other place to, to, to get that money. When you were out there in Oregon or on any of these um, internship experiences, were they each a little bit different or did they seem like they were additive and building towards what now has been your future career? Absolutely. They were all different in terms of even though they were all in the outdoors, they provided me different skill sets uh, from the United States Forest Service as a, as a backcountry ranger to Rocky Mountain National Park as a VUA, a visitor use assistant, where I was giving out information. And then I actually worked for the Student Conservation uh, Association themselves as a trail crew leader, where I turned around and I was a crew leader for high school kids building trails in the city of Denver, uh, uh, excuse me, the state of Colorado, uh, in, the, in the state parks. Um, and so I continued building that. And then, and then one, one summer at Rocky Mountain National Park, my roommate was, was a law enforcement park ranger. And, and he told me about the career. He, he, he explained the whole law enforcement concept within the park service. And I tell you, I got so intrigued and, and, and his experience inspired me where I actually got the Student Conservation Association to pay for my, my, uh, my seasonal academy in Petaluma, California. And so, so, so they did, I attended the, 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 the seasonal academy. And then, and then I went back to Jersey and, and I continued uh, working. And two and a half years later, I had applied for a job because once you go through a seasonal academy, you have three years to get a seasonal position with the National Park Service. Otherwise, that certification is no good. And so I had just happened to apply, forgot about it. And, and I remember early May, I get a call from someone from Yosemite National Park saying, hey, are you still interested in a seasonal position as a law enforcement officer in the Valley, in the valley District of, of, of uh, Yosemite National Park? And I said, absolutely. So I called my boss at the Hilton. And I said, guess what? Uh, this is not internships anymore. This is actually now I'm going to an actual job. So um, I'm going to give you my, my two-week notice. And I packed, by then I had a car. I packed up my, uh, my, my little Jetta and off I went. And when you had finished your internships and gone back to Jersey, 
did it make the contrast of of what you had been experiencing and then soon what you were about to be experiencing at Yosemite that much um, you know larger even though you have such a great um, you know passion and, and nostalgia for for New Jersey what was that like to actually have gone back to New Jersey and then have to make that decision you know going back to Jersey and going back to some of my friends you know every summer I'd come back and, and I'd hang out with my friends and they'd want to hear everything uh, about my experience in the summer um, but as I as, as after my graduation and, and, and really staying in Jersey for a year or two um, this call came up or this, this, you know, come, come work. And all the, the, the all the doors I could see opening um, to, to really, I wanted to see the world. And, and so I knew right away that um, Hilton was not my, going to be my career choice um, because this opportunity came up and, 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 and never, I never looked back. This was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest this evening is Prashant Latwala. Prashant, I wanted to get in a little bit more to your National Park Service and law enforcement career. When you joined the Park Service at Yosemite, were there skills or uh, areas of your professional career and development that now were beginning to sort of emerge? And maybe tell us a little bit about your experiences in the National Park Service having um, been sort of um, initially anointed uh, at at Yosemite and sort of what the job now entailed going forward from there. Sure. So when I when I arrived in that first season, I was actually hired under some special funding to help tackle an issue that that was emerging at Yosemite National Park, which was uh, bears breaking into cars for food. Um, and, <laughs> which is and, an issue that I think is still going on, right? It, it is. And so I was the first. Uh, so at that time. Uh, the state of California pro had provided uh, Yosemite National Park um, X number of money uh, for over five years to combat this issue. And so they, with that money, they hired uh, a bunch of maintenance folks. They hired um, uh, resource management folks. They hired one law enforcement uh, ranger to write tickets and enforce the law. And that was me. And so when I got there, working in the, working National Park Service as a law enforcement officer, you know, a lot of folks will think that, oh, okay, you're out there just doing car stops left and right. You know, we're there to protect the people. We're there to protect the resources. Um, and, and that includes um, not just, you know, doing DUI car stops, but also enforcing uh, laws that, that actually affect our, our natural resources. And, and, and so that summer, all I did was, was, was walk to campgrounds and, and ask people to put, put food away. And interesting enough, um, I probably met, met more um, Indian families <laughs> camping um, than I ever had. Um, and I was, that blew my mind. Uh, I was like, every, every weekend, I was, you know, just a series of Indian families enjoying camping in Yosemite National Park. Were they, were they surprised to see a, an Indian ranger uh, come their way? Not only were they surprised, but they continued to, every, I mean, I, I can tell you how many times, come back later when you're done and come eat some Indian food with us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, it, and they, they were absolutely astonished that, that someone, you know, from, from where I'm from, was working as a law enforcement ranger in middle of nowhere, Yosemite National Park. Um, but from there, I, my goal, my next goal was to get a permanent job because that's what you, what you want is a permanent position. And so to, I had to build some skill sets to get to that point, uh, which included getting my EMT, uh, which, I, which I accomplished, and then getting some search and rescue skills, which I had accomplished. And then I came back a second season um, for the same position. And while I was there, they gave me other training that could build my, my resume. 
so I could apply. Um, once, once that was done, I went back to New Jersey after my second season and continued working at the Hilton. Six months to seven months uh, into being back in Jersey, uh, a, a position opened up at Thomas Edison National Historical Park in West Orange, New Jersey. And I think that's the focal, I think that's the point when I asked myself, do I want to continue to work in the hospitality industry? Because I loved my job at the Hilton, but I was a room service server, um, making good money at a four diamond hotel in Jersey in Short Hills. Um, or do I want a career doing something that, that no other folks that I know have been doing? Well, and I mean, they, they kind of speak to, um, you know, this idea that you are, are able to, in fact, Inter interact and interface with people quite a bit in a way that you develop relationships, just the environment perhaps is different. And for you, it sounded like this was really a, a different passion and a different calling for you. It, it was a complete true calling of, of working for the National Park Service at that point and, and really seeing the country and seeing the resources that the, that the, that, that the lands within the national park system um, have been set aside for. And I became passionate to protect those, um, you know, working in Yosemite and, and protecting those bears from people and people from the bears. Um, really, you know, uh, even though I was carrying, you know, a, a weapon and handcuffs and all that stuff, um, you know, I thought about other careers and other um, departments or agencies like the DEA or the FBI. But I asked myself, you know, I, I'm willing to go out there and sacrifice and risk but I'm gonna do it for natural resources. And is, is that something that is, you know, for those colleagues of yours who are in law enforcement and in the National Park Service and, you know, really committed to that protection of national resources? Does, Absolutely. Is that, right, does that separate you perhaps from others in law enforcement in that way? It, it does, it, it, you know, because our job isn't just to enforce the laws, but our job is to also have these visitors understand why the National Park Service exists. And so you can't go in with, with a hard fist every single time because there's, a, there's an education piece that we have in our position descriptions uh, that we utilize to really explain why Yosemite exists, why Natchez Trace uh, Parkway exists. You know, I mean, a case in point, you know, um, you know we have a beautiful 444-mile road here um, uh, from, from Tennessee all the way down to Mississippi. And, and the purpose of this road, several purposes, but one of them is for folks to leave the city and go onto a roadway where they have serenity, that beautiful view shed. I mean, and, and for, for that matter, the notion of being an educator is, mm -hmm. you know, b being a prime part of, of what you do. Have there been instances where you found the um, role to be overbalanced towards one or the other, meaning that like, hey, boy, this, I, I'm really concentrating a lot on the law enforcement side, but it's tough to now juggle or, or balance the education or the conservation side. We, we fight that every day um, because, you know, and so after, you know, after working at Thomas Edison, where it was a historical park, so uh, the law enforcement there is a little different where you're more of a physical security person because that place closed at 6 p.m. So your job is to ensure that no one breaks in after hours. And then from there, I went to Boston National Historical Park for many years. Um, and very similar, where law enforcement wasn't taking cars off the streets, but making sure that their people aren't breaking into an, a historic area or, or damaging or vandalizing um, these lands that have been set aside for a purpose. But the challenge really came when I went to Lake Mead, where I worked there for 10 years. And that's where I moved up from a field law enforcement ranger to a supervisory 
uh, law enforcement ranger. And there, it's a rec, the rec area is, 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 is sort of a two-point, right? People are there to recreate, but also enjoy uh, the natural beauty of, of, of Lake Mead National Recreation Area. But people, when they enter national parks, they forget sometimes, they're, you know, the common sense. And I realized over the years that one of the things, you know, it's a human nature where, and so people take chances all the time when they're out in national parks and they don't, they don't mitigate the risk. And so, you know, 10 years at Lake Mead, I probably investigated over 30 to 40 uh, fatalities um, from drownings to more vehicle crashes uh, to uh, suicides. Um, but that's just a small pine piece of all the visitors that come in. And so when we put away bad guys or when we uh, provide education, it's truly when a visitor says to me, hey, this is the safest place I've ever been to. Yeah, yeah. Not knowing what my eight, last eight hours were. Well, and, and I mean, it's a contrast, right? The people are coming to um, get away or escape and, um, again, go for recreation purposes. And, and little do they know that there's, you know, oftentimes a lot of trauma or a lot of danger or a lot of risk that, that's happening behind the scenes. And that small fraction can sometimes pull you away from the, the joy and the beauty that, that's out there. In, in your uh, experiences, have, have you also had a chance to experience that, that joy and that, that, that rec recreation aspect, um, having been at some of these amazing places too? Oh, 100%. And, and, and it's because when, you know, when we, some of these places that I worked at, I actually, I actually lived in the park um, to provide after our emergencies. And so, you know, when, when I have my, my kids, um, we, we lived in Lake Mead National Recreation Area in, in, overlooking the lake. Um, and, and that, you know, I mean, that's a five, you know, five, a million dollar view that, that we had working in a national park. Um, same thing as at, at Yosemite. Um, and then from, from Lake Mead, I moved to Gulf Isles National Seashore where, where me, my wife, and my kids just fell in love with, with that, that, um, that area. Just beautiful white sands. Your role trying to be able to keep that, um, like you said, mitigated and um, keep people safe, but also while protecting the, the resources, um, such a fine balance there. It, it is a fine balance. And, and you know, and, and I'm not going to you know, sugarcoat anything. You know, time's very frustrating. Uh, very frustrating to see good people make bad decisions where we as law enforcement have to step in. But there are times where it's so satisfactory to know um, that we took a really bad person out of a national park unit, or we went out, out on, on a boat and, and rescued someone who was in the brink of, of, of dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, my guest tonight is Prashant Lutwala uh, of the National Park Service. Prashant, you know, we started out uh, some of our conversation about your journey into the National Park Service, but I want to think about your role as a South Asian American um, in the National Park Service. I mean, you know, we, we don't see a lot of South Asians in the National Park Service. And what are your thoughts on, on that? How do we both reflect on the lack of representation, perhaps, and how do we actually promote more of it so that people have a better idea of what the uh, joys and rewards are of working um, in conservation. It's, it's hard to know the unknown, right? And so there's folks out there who have, probably have no idea that they can have a career um, within National Park Service, United States Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management. Um, and, so, and so our job is to reach out. Um, just two, three weeks ago, I did a, um, a, a, a pod, not a podcast, but a Zoom call with uh, 
William Patterson University, um, where there was a class that was was really interested in wanting to know what type of careers are out there. And through a friend of mine, um, I was able to reach to those audiences. And, and within that audience, it was a diverse audience, including some uh, South Asian folks. But I think the ticket is for folks like, like me to continue to, to go out and recruit um, and, 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 and let folks know um, of, of, of all races and backgrounds. Because um, I, uh, I don't think it's just South, South Asian. I think, I think, you know, the National Park Service, the workforce can use a lot more diversity and really reflect um, what America is today. You know, we were talking about this earlier that, um, you know, I think the national parks and those who are apt to travel and um, really understand the beauty of, of resources that are out there, a lot of times, as you mentioned at Yosemite, there's a lot of Indians out there and South Asians who are going to enjoy this, and yet there perhaps are barriers for um, some of those younger folks or, or even not so young folks to pursue careers or vocations in conservation through the agencies you just mentioned. Have you um, thought, ever thought about why that might be and, and, and where that maybe stems from? I, I do. I think, I think a, lot, a lot of it has to do with, with a, a, a cultural barrier. Um, you know, as I said before, when we first, uh, when I first arrived here in this country and, and, and lived in New Jersey, you know, what did my parents say? Go be a doctor, Prashant. Go be a lawyer, Prashant. Um, and so they, they, they kept feeding me that, or open your own business, Prashant. Um, and, and I didn't want to do any of those things. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to venture off and, and find something, but I don't think that, that, that a lot of um, South, South Asian Indians get an opportunity to, to really see what's out there. And so they go with that concept that they've been growing up with, with their parents. Um, and I think that's the number one reason I believe from my, talking to my other Indian friends uh, that prevents them from looking at other occupations that may exist out there, not just National Park Service. Um, I mean, we're talking about the, you know, other law enforcement agencies, DEA, um, FBI. And, and, and ironically, because I joined the National Park Service as a law enforcement ranger, that I think had a little to do with my brother being inspired to join law enforcement as well. He was, he was working for Budweiser uh, as a chemical engineer and, and, and he saw what I was doing. So he joined the DEA and, and he had a phenomenal, he has a phenomenal career now, 15, 15 years later, but it was that connection through me to have him open his eyes to what else is out there. In some ways, uh, is it does it require some courage and some sort of a leap of faith to be able to say, I need to have that that capacity to explore and perhaps whether it's the youth or the parents or the community to be able to allow for that agency to to actually make that that leap of faith? Oh, 100 percent. It is. You know, I felt like I took a huge leap of faith just leaving New Jersey. Um, I was, I, you know, I was scared. I was like, what's going to happen? What's out there? Um, what if I fail? Um, because I already upset my parents because they didn't want me doing this. And so, so do I have, do, you know, do I have a place to go back to? Um, and, but, but at that point, my passion was so great in seeing this country and, 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 see, and doing something different um, outside that box that I think we create for ourselves. I don't think I cared. Yep. You, you mentioned before that there are very few um, Indians uh, or South Asians in the National Park Service, let alone um, in some of these agencies. Um, does it does it make it harder to find um, a community to build that uh, diversity or even like get some momentum around it too? No, it, it it is very difficult because some of these places I've been to, 
you know, are, are you know, even just the community themselves are not diverse that you could tap into um, in terms of recruiting. Um, and so in my, in my mind, it starts with going outside of the communities where these national parks exist and tapping into uh, the, the local colleges and even at the high school level um, where there might be a diversity pool that I can I can talk to and show them that, hey, there's a whole career, a whole world uh, beyond uh, you know where you live. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that's been a big challenge, not just professionally, but you know, personally too, by moving around you know, I, I don't get to enjoy and go to my um, Indian Indian's ho- friend's house and, and enjoy Indian food. Right. Um, but there might be campers out there who um, will be inviting you to, to go and share some of their food. Absolutely. But the other reason I do this and move around every, you know, I've been through, I think, six or seven parks now for the ni- last 19 years. Uh, I do this for, for my kids now. Um, I don't want them to, to, to live in a bubble. Um, because if you, if you stay in that bubble too long, you forget what's on the other side. Um, and so my kids have gotten a chance to, uh, you know, live in Boston, Vegas, uh, Pensacola, Florida, um, and now um, Tupelo, Mississippi, of all places, right? Um, and, and, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi, you know, I, I was uh, apprehensive, but probably one of the beautiful states I've ever been to. And, and, and my kids tell me this. And I mean, you know, so that that's the thing, right, that there's always these um, surprises along the way and, and ways to build community and and, you know, folks find who their community and, and who their, um, you know, affinity uh, is for. And, and you, you find it and you become resilient with it. Let me ask you this uh, at, for those who may be considering um, a career in conservation or a career with the National Park Service. Um, if, if you were to offer any kind of mentoring advice um, to them, what, would, what kinds of messages would you share with them? Um, the first mes- message I would share is, don't be afraid to look beyond what you know. Um, because without, without networking and without uh, making other friends, you don't know what they know. Uh, and so the first thing I, I always, and I had a whole pool of friends. Um, Growing up, and so I encourage people to continue to make lots of good friends of all races, all backgrounds, because everyone has something to offer that we are not aware of. Um, second is 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 you know if someone is interested in in a in a, in a career in the National Park Service uh, or Department of Interior is to is you know we're in the technology world now, right? Um, we I didn't have I didn't have Google back back in high school. Um, I had to figure it out myself. Um, but we have the ability now to go out and, and, and Google careers. And surprisingly, you will see um, what's, what's out there uh, that you can take advantage of, like the Student Conservation Association. Without them, I tell you, I would be still in Jersey, working at the Hilton, probably working at the front desk or, or, or room service server that I've been doing for five years. Uh, and so my, I would encourage to continue building that network and, and, and continue to researching on what your passion may be. Um, you know, a, a good example is, that, you know, surprisingly, my daughter has, has somehow fallen in love with um, anime, you know, just out of the blues, start drawing beautiful um, anime pictures. Well, you know, and I think what that speaks to is just like this notion of exploration and being open to new thoughts, new ideas, and in fact, being able to support people's passion um, clearly, Prashant, you're you're so passionate about your work, and um, it's been really exciting to hear your journey. I hope it'll inspire 
um, others and, and, you know, certainly those who may be interested in the National Park Service or who don't know yet that they're interested in the National Park Service to at least have the conversation and explore. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, this is Samika, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio, the world's largest South Asian radio station. 